Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy. We are here to wrap up week seven of college baseball. It was a pretty fun weekend around the country. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of ranked teams playing each other, uh, but that doesn't mean there, there weren't some fun matchups. And we did, of course, have a top 15 series between Florida and Ole Miss, which the Gators won. We'll wrap that up. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some things happening out on the Pac-12 as UCLA lost another series and Arizona won a rivalry showdown at Arizona State. Uh, some some happenings in the Big 12, maybe the biggest upset of the weekend was Kansas State taking down Texas Tech. TCU remains undefeated. We'll get into that uh, and more here today on the podcast in the top 25 today. Arkansas remains number one. They have the most top 25 wins, the most top 15 wins in the country. And so the Razorbacks remain number one, Vanderbilt number two. You can check out everything else over at baseballamerica.com in the top 25. So we got a lot to talk about here, and we're going to do that. But first, I got to let you know that the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo, doc, you can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we got, we got plenty to discuss here on as we wrap up this uh, the seventh week of college baseball season, that basically puts us at the midpoint. And uh, here at the midpoint, if you go look at RPI, it's still a little early, but if you go look at RPI, Villanova, number one in RPI. So Joe, this is now a Wildcat Appreciation Podcast. I am so ready for it. You know, uh, one of my, so I have to admit, the the well of Villanova baseball memories uh, is relatively uh, <laughs> relatively short. Uh, although it, Matt Caesar played there, do I have that right? He did. That is, is correct. Right? Yeah. He, he played yeah. football as well. That's right. He was a he was a two way. I remember them running like you know packages on you know because I feel like Villanova football was good at that point too, and or was good at that point. And yeah, I think they were and, like FCS contenders. Yeah, I feel like there was like an FCF FCS playoff game. I think they even for, won a title in there somewhere. Yeah, I feel there was there was definitely like a highlight package that was run of like Matt Caesar baseball highlights while he was playing football there or something. I feel like I have it memory. But what I will say is that Villanova uh, was kind of a darling of opening weekend back in 2020. If you remember, they won a, a two to one game against Arizona State, something like that. And it was it was uh, definitely a moment where everyone kind of looked around and was like, what, what was that? Because it was Arizona State with, of course, as you remember, Torkelson and, you know, Workman and Halver and the whole bit on offense. And so, you know, uh, good for good for good for the Wildcats. I mean, obviously they're playing a very regional schedule, so it's hard to know exactly what to make of them. But for a program that hasn't had a lot to celebrate in recent years, uh, I'm sure they'll take a start like this, no doubt. 2009, Villanova won the FCS national title. Beat yeah, Montana. Oh, how about that? The Grizz. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So you know, good good for Villanova, and which I say it sounds like I'm making a joke. It sounds like I'm being flippant snide there but but i truly mean it i mean good for them i mean that's it's a program that hasn't had a lot of success on the diamond of late and you know maybe this is a smoke and mirror situation but i think you know it's a team that hasn't won a lot of games and so i think you'll take any good start kind of regardless of how it comes when you're in that kind of situation so um interested to see where they go from here yeah i mean they're they're 12 and 2 and when i did the big east preview i expected 
you know, I wrote about how Villanova was improved and how they showed some signs last season, like you talked about beating Arizona State and just generally being competitive at the in the first month of the season, that you know, things were moving in the right direction under Kevin Mulvey. Um, you know, they uh they haven't been to a tournament since 1991. I still would probably consider UConn to be the favorites in the Big East. Uh, but Creighton hasn't started all that well. St. John's has been very mixed. So I don't see a reason why Villanova can't compete with any of those teams. And, you know, obviously they're not going to stay number one in RPI. If you look at RPI right now, I said it's a little early, but, you know, except for Villanova and Fairfield, again, the Metro Atlantic it continues to be a Scrooge on, on RPI. But if you look at RPI and you remove those couple of teams, things look pretty normal through the top 25-ish. I mean, there are a couple other things in there that are like, well, Western Carolina's in there at 14 and seven, three and two in the SOCON. Like that, that's not going to last. But the, my point is RPI is starting to firm up and um, I don't know what anybody's going to make of Villanova going forward. They, they've played okay teams, not great teams, um, but we'll just have to see what the what happens when uh, when Big East play starts and that happens this week and they go to Creighton. So we'll... Uh, We'll see where they go from here, but um, I'm also just ready to get Big East play started. I'm tired of wondering, like, how good is UConn really? And what's up with St. John's and Xavier? So looking forward to some Big East play this week. Two more wins this season, just to give some context, two more wins this season for Villanova will be the most, tie the most they've had since 2016. So that gives you an idea of, of you know, how much success they've had early this season relative to previous years. Now, they probably would have... Last year, you mentioned they were nine and five. They probably would have blown past the 14 wins last year too. But um, so a big deal for sure. Like um, I, I say that with no snark, a big deal for Villanova baseball to be where they are today. All right. So I mentioned that Nova is number one in RPI. Um, little peek a little bit past them and you'll start seeing the SEC teams. And uh, some of those SEC teams you'll, you'll find are, are Florida and Ole Miss. And they played a top 15 series this weekend in Gainesville. Uh, the Gators wind up winning two out of three. And that on its own is a significant result. That's the best series win on Florida's schedule to this point. And oh, by the way, it came against the best team they've played. And that's really important because previously the best two teams they'd played had been Miami and South Carolina, and they went one at five against them. And so that's uh, that's not great for the Gators. And if you throw in a midweek loss to Florida State, they were one in six against, you know, really the best teams on their schedule. So just getting a series win against Ole Miss is important on its face. But then when you look at how Florida did it, we hinted at this a little bit on the preview pod, talking about how Florida was, there were rumors that Florida was going to try a new strategy on the mound. Well, they rolled it out, and it wasn't quite what we had expected. The reports had been openers. It turned out to be tandem starters. And Franco Alamon paired with Tommy Mace on Thursday night to throw the full game. Alamon threw four. Mace came in out of the bullpen and threw five. They beat Ole Miss. Then in uh, in Friday's game, they paired Christian Scott with Jack Leftwich. Scott pitched pretty well, two runs in the first five innings. Leftwich started okay in his appearance and then almost got to him in the eighth and the ninth and, and got an eight, two win that wasn't like that, that score was, it, it was closer than that score appears. And then Florida did things a little more conventionally on Sunday, 
with Barco as the starter. And uh, although they did then go to Jordan Carey in late in the game, uh, who had started the game at shortstop, not something you see too terribly commonly. And but but Florida was able to come away with a uh, a tight win there to win the series. And you know it wasn't a must win series because it was the first weekend of April, but at the same time, it was a pretty critical win for Florida. And then when you throw in the fact that they rolled out this new pitching strategy, which maybe represents a way forward, it becomes a whole lot more important, I think. Yeah, if it wasn't if it wasn't a must win, it was a, a must play well type of series for Florida, I think at a bare minimum, because you know it's life life is always tough in the SEC, but you know, for Florida, you just you you laid out the numbers there. They were they were starting to use up a lot of opportunities to prove themselves against the best teams on their schedule, there would be more to come, but you were starting, you're starting to get to a point, like we mentioned, we're halfway through the regular season now where, you know, um, some of the the top end goals they were going to have for the season would be a lot more difficult to reach uh, given, given some of the opportunities they had burned. So it was huge for them to do what they did. You know, I, I, so the tandem starter thing worked, especially on Friday, um, you know, with with Alamon and Mace were both really good. The thing about it is, is, Thursday. Gosh, I did that in my story on, um, my, I wrote about ECU a couple of times this, this past week and I called the Thursday game Friday in the entirety of the story and in the tweet. And I had to go back and fix it. Um, because it's just so hard to beat that out of, because it's just such a rhythm, but yes, Thursday, pardon me. Um, but Alamon and Franco, Franco, now I'm all, I'm all flustered. Uh, we're going to leave this all in though, because we, we uh, have to let the listeners know that nobody is perfect here. Uh, okay. Also because Joe doesn't feel like doing the editing. <laughs> well, see, you didn't have to put me on a spot like that. You didn't have to call me out like that. I was going to, I was going to put it as a, like a, a favor to our listeners. Like, you know, we're just going to give you the raw audio files, but you're right. It's also because editing little bits out like that are just kind of a, a pain in the rear. But so Franco Alleman and Tommy Ace both throw well on Thursday. There we go. But on the other hand, like Mace was so good that if he starts that game, like maybe he's fine. You know, maybe he goes seven, eight, he looks great. Uh, we'll never know. And, and this worked. So you, you count it as a win. And, and maybe, I think maybe that's, you know, important for both Alleman and Mace because they both had their ups and downs. I mean, we've seen some of the, the struggles Alleman has had at times. So I think it's, it's big for both guys there. But you saw the next day it, it didn't work quite as well. Um, so it, a little bit of a mixed bag. But I, I, I will be curious to see if this is kind of a way forward. And in, in this way, it's, it's kind of moving a little bit more towards what we talked about last week with Arkansas, you know, just using your best guys in the right spots and not being so tied to feeling like you have to get X number of innings from the first guy you throw out there, just because of the way it's always worked. Um, maybe this is a move in, in that direction. Florida is typically a program that, that does have more traditional pitching roles, but, but maybe not with the staff. So we'll, we'll have to see that that only time will tell there. And it's clear. I think when you look at the Sunday game, that they are still working through some things pitching wise, because you mentioned Jordan Carrion coming in and, you know, he's a guy who hadn't pitched an SEC play yet, a relatively small sample of a couple of weekends, but this was his first SEC appearance. And then, you know, Ryan Kabarkas hasn't thrown a ton and he comes in there, pitches twice in the weekend, gets two big outs in that finale with two guys on base uh, to close down that win. So Florida's clearly, still trying to, to, to figure things out on the mound. And the good news is they've, this is still a top, this is now again, a top 10 team. And so 
despite all of the mixing and matching and us not feeling like they've quite got it together, it's, it's still a top 10 team and they've still bought themselves a lot of time to try to get things figured out. So really positive weekend for, for the Gators overall, I think. Yeah. I think when you, when you look at what they, what they did this weekend, the, the most important thing was that they found what could be another option. Now, is it going to be the option going forward? You know, we'll, we'll just have to see. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan did not commit to using this strategy on uh, on this coming weekend at Tennessee. Uh, but what he did say was that he liked what he saw from Alamon and Scott, and their performance gave Florida options. And you know, he mentioned that it also could just be an option of. Well, maybe we go back to normal with Mason Leftwich in the rotation, but then you you just feel more empowered, I guess, uh, or feel more comfortable with using Alamon and Scott earlier in games and for more extended periods of time. They showed here that they can do four innings, five innings, uh, and, and, and that that's okay. They're stretched out enough to do that and that you know they can get – you know, big important outs over over multi big multi inning uh, appearances. So whether that comes at the start of a game or whether that comes like with an aggressive move to them in the fifth inning or in the sixth inning and saying like, okay, you're this is your game, go finish. Um, you know, they, they have some of some of these options. And you know, one thing that that I think that we haven't talked about enough, partially because of how it happened and partially because I just thought that Florida's staff was going to be deep enough to withstand this. And that was a mistake on my part is that you know, Florida's down at least three of its best arms. Uh, they lost Tyler Nesbitt and Nick Pogue to Tommy John surgery in, uh, in February. And then Ben Specht, who really established himself as their closer in 2020 has really been limited by injury this season and, and has, has, just not not look the same and not pitched as much at all. And so if you if you take those three guys out of the staff, all of a sudden Florida's looking like we talked before the season that this was supposed to be the deepest bullpen in the country. Well, you take those guys out and you can no longer like count on it being the deepest bullpen in the country. And it sure hasn't pitched like it to this point. Finding guys to step up for, for them has not been a simple thing to do. So you know, if you can, instead of, you know, trying to, to, to bring through a whole bunch of different guys, um, you know, in a more conventional bullpen setup, if you can instead rely on four or five guys to cover, you know, 22 of the 27 innings or, or more in, uh, in a weekend, like, I think that's pretty significant. And whether that happens again through Mason left, which pitching out of the bullpen, or whether Franco and Scott return to the bullpen. I don't think it particularly matters as long as something similar to this uh, strategy is continued to be employed by the Gators, because I think that this is just kind of where they're at right now. Um, you know, they're coming off of a weekend at South Carolina where none of their starters went more than five. And, you know, that's, uh, that's just not going to get done. Somebody has to step up and go six or seven, uh, ideally two of them, but like, you know, if you're not going to get that, you got to find another way to do it. And if Florida, because some of these injuries doesn't have the kind of depth that maybe an Arkansas has right now, 
then you know maybe you got to go find some other way to to go about it yeah it's a different expression of depth i feel like i think we when we talk about depth i think so often or at least i'll just speak for myself so often i think of oh that means they can have games where they run seven or eight relievers out there and the quality doesn't drop or they can uh, you know they can throw nine different guys and they don't have to recycle relievers on sunday you know the, the guys that pitched on friday if they don't want to and I think this is just a different expression of Florida's depth where they are down a few guys. Maybe they, a couple of things they've tried haven't worked as well as they would have liked, but they do have the embarrassment of riches of being able to, to do something like they've done with starting Allman and, and, and Scott and seeing how that goes and, and tandem starting. And that, that's a luxury that a lot of teams don't have to, to feel like they have that kind of, that kind of luxury. And I think, I think you see it a little bit with Ole Miss. I mean, they, Ole Miss is in a situation where they've, I think they're at a point where you start to think about what you're doing on Sunday with Derek Diamond. And, you know, they, at this point, you've got Hoagland and, and Nikhazy locked in on, on Fridays and Saturdays or Thursdays and Fridays as the case is, um, you know, and on Sundays, Derek Diamond just hasn't been as he's been good in spots, but he hasn't been as consistent. And so I think they're in a position where, you know, they've got to figure out, do they go back to Drew McDaniel and maybe move him into Sunday do they, do they try to turn that into a bullpen game, but they're like kind of lies the problem where, you know, I don't know that they're really set up to succeed in that same way. So um, I try not to over, uh, over analyze Sunday starters, because as I've said a million times, the number of teams who really feels good about their pitching situation on Sunday is, is a lot smaller than most people think. And if Derek Diamond is that Sunday guy, they're in, in good shape in the grand scheme of things. But when you're talking about the types of, of series that they're trying to win here, um, you know, I think, you know, they're going to need a little bit more than what, than what Diamond has given them of late there. I think that's um, it's a question they're going to have to answer. I think the comparison between Florida and Ole Miss, I think, can be made there where I'm not sure what kind of like, other than just swapping for McDaniel, I'm not sure what the, the zig is there when, when everybody else is zagged um, uh, as far as the Sunday starter goes. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Franco Alamon and Christian Scott is that I think that if uh, if Mason Leftwich hadn't come back, and remember, they were not expected back, if they if they had gone in the draft, I think those are the two guys that would have replaced them in the rotation. Barco would have pitched uh, as the one, and Alamon coming in from junior college, uh, where he was a successful starter, started successfully on the Cape, like, he, he probably would have moved into the rotation, and Christian Scott, who you know, had been a good bullpen arm capable of going multi-inning outings. I mean, he certainly would have gotten a look. I don't know if they would, maybe they would have landed on someone else. Maybe in an ideal world, Ben Specht would have been healthy and, and gotten a shot or Nesbitt would have gotten a shot. You know, they, there are a lot of guys that have the ability, uh, but you know, these two could have been it and they would be in most rotations, almost every rotation around the country. Uh, yeah. I, that, the point on Ole Miss is a good one. Uh, we don't have to get deeply into Ole Miss here because we're probably going to get deeply into Ole Miss this weekend, uh, later in this week, ahead of the the series against Arkansas. Um, but I will say, you know, we kept Ole Miss at number three in the top twenty-five despite losing this series because they still have the second most top twenty-five wins in the country. Only Arkansas has more. Um, you know that. Opening weekend uh, against the Big 12 teams is maybe a little while ago, but you know they still looked dominant in Arlington. They had swept their first two SEC series 
against an Auburn team that's way better than its record and an Alabama team that also is better than its record. Um, you know, and they, uh, they've almost has just played well all season long. They'll get another shot this weekend at home against Arkansas, but you know, they, you know, we talked about can't be must win in the first weekend of April. I'm not even going to come close to suggesting this is must win for Ole Miss. It's not, it's not the same situation Florida was in a week ago, but there is maybe a little more urgency now having lost this series at Gainesville to, to come home and, and play well with the number one team coming into, into your building. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's well put. Um, gosh, it's just, seems like we have these conversations about so many teams where it's just like you look ahead on schedules and you're like, well, they have to, they have to get it figured out quick because look who's coming around the corner. And like, that's lie. That, that is not new in the sec or, you know, by the way, the ACC this year, but uh, man, it's just tough. Like there, there really is just not a lot of breathers. They're just, there just really isn't. Yeah. I mean, Florida has Tennessee this weekend who, Oh, by the way, is up to seven. So, yeah. you know, some, uh, some big ones in, in both of the divisions uh, uh, this weekend. All right. We're going to get to some more stuff, probably head out West here for some pac 12 talk, but first check this out. All right, Joe, for me, the big series this weekend in the Pac-12 was Arizona and Arizona State. I was attracted to it probably partially because it's a rivalry series, uh, but also because I was fascinated by the contrast and styles. Arizona State came into the weekend with the second best ERA in the Pac-12, trailing only Oregon State. That's not something that I'm used to saying about Arizona State. You think of them much more about offense than about pitching, certainly in the last several years. Uh, but they had started the year pitching really, really well. And Arizona has the best offense in the country. So I, I was very curious to see how this would turn out. And, you know, I'd been intrigued by what Arizona State had done this year, but they hadn't really taken the step forward. And this was going to be an opportunity against your rival at home in Phoenix Muni. You know, okay, go prove it now. Well, they didn't. Arizona won the first two games. Uh, they hit Arizona State pitching like nobody has all season long. They, uh, in the first two games alone, had already scored more runs against ASU than anyone had scored on a weekend against ASU. And, you know, yes, the, the Sun Devils did win the third game, and that's a credit to them. And, again, a reminder that, Arizona is probably a little bit light on the mound, although they, they held the Sun Devils to three runs on a Sunday, which is a, a significant improvement after Oregon scored 18 and UCLA scored 11 over the last two weeks. Uh, but but still, a, a very strong showing this weekend from the Wildcats to get a series win. And, you know, they aren't that didn't move them to the top of the Pac-12 standings. They're they're sitting here at five and four is all, but uh, I, I think that they certainly, in, in a Pac-12 that is going to be congested this season, uh, that's a big road series win, and it's going to be an important one for Arizona when you start looking at, at postseason resumes as well. Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, it's kind of, <laughs> on the one hand, like totally true that, Arizona did things against the Arizona state pitching staff that no one else has been able to do. And on the other hand, I think I mentioned this to you last night, on the other hand, it could have been so much worse because it, it really does kind of feel like, you know, okay, 10 runs on Friday, not great. Like, you know, Arizona state, you know, starter gets bounced after ending in two thirds. They 
you know, kind of struggled after that to find a, a reliever to really settle things down. So it wasn't, it wasn't great, but you know, close call in game two. And, you know, it feels like seven runs against Arizona is actually, you know, kind of a, an okay result. Like you can, it's less with, than their average. <laughs> yeah. You can live with that. You know, it's not ideal, but you can, you can live with that a little bit. And then you're right. I mean, um, both sides have thought did a really nice job on Sunday, like just a strangely well-played game to finish off with a, you know, with a, a, a three to two score there, that was not, um, not at all what I, what I would have expected there on, on either side, frankly. So, so, uh, you know, I think it's one of the, the uh, to use a, a, a soccer phrase, it is a fair result, I feel like, because on the one hand, Arizona was expected to win this series. They did win this series. On the other hand, I think Arizona State acquitted itself really well. I think they showed that, well, yes, they are a little short on the mound these days. They are figuring it out. They're, you know, Justin Fall as their Sunday guy uh, has been a great change they've made to move him into the, he was kind of previously in like a high leverage reliever role where they would use him, you know, for a couple innings here or just to get one out there and then bring him back the next day, that kind of thing. You know, now he's moved into the Sunday role and, and he's done a really nice job for him and or for them. And so that, that's been big. So it really does feel like everybody comes out of this series. You're always disappointed to lose a rivalry series. I'm not suggesting ASU is, is celebrating today based on what they did over the weekend, but I think they can come out feeling pretty good about themselves. They, you know, the, the pitching staff didn't have a great weekend, but it, it also didn't go out there and give up 18 runs in any game. And then on Sunday they come out and they not only get a win, but they also do a good job against, um, you know, the, the Arizona lineup. So, I think this was this is the kind of weekend where everybody kind of you come out of it and just, you just kind of feel like that's exactly how you more or less expected things to go. Um, and so for Arizona, I think it's it's huge because it's it it, it shows that I think this team is kind of growing a little bit um, because I think one of the marks of Arizona early this season and really in the last couple of seasons is you just get a lot of inconsistency and you'd have these these big wins, but you'd also have some tough to explain losses and like I said, that, that was still happening early this season. And it seems to be that, you know, when you compare them to a team like UCLA, which I'm assuming we'll talk about here shortly, um, you know, UCLA is still struggling with that kind of stuff. Uh, Arizona really seems to have gotten a lot of that out of its system now. And I, you know, I say that, you know, for their sake, knocking on wood. Um, but for now, it does kind of feel like Arizona has, while yes, they, they do have games where they give up more runs than you would want to give up. But it does seem like there are a lot of the just kind of head scratching stuff has kind of been worked out of the system. And I think that's the, a big development for the team. Yeah, I would, uh, I would generally agree with that. I think they're moving in a, a very strong direction here um, over the last couple of weeks. And uh, for Arizona, things really lighten up from here. I hesitate to say that a little bit like Cal is this weekend at home. Uh, and Cal has been playing well all season long, like not, they've done nothing that like really stands out as being very impressive, but they just keep winning series basically. And, you know, so that's, that's not nothing. Uh, I'll, I'll say that, but Cal at Wazoo, USC, Utah, like Arizona has a chance here to make some hay before, uh, you know, the, the start of May. Uh, th this has to be a big month, I think, for the Wildcats if they're going to contend seriously. I mean, they're going to contend for the Pac-12 title, but if they're really going to make a run at a Pac-12 title, I think this weekend has to be a uh, a really big one uh, for for the Wildcats. And and look, they they've got they've got everything that they need to uh, to get that done at this point. Um, you know, to to win the games here, and 
Um, you know, if, if they were able to get it done, this would be, they're trying to win a Pac-12 title for the first time since 2012. So uh, I, I think what they've shown the last two weekends against Oregon and Arizona State is, is indicative of their ability to do it this season, whether or not they actually are able to, to break through and do it. I'm desperate for, you mentioned Cal, like Cal and Stanford in particular, just to some degree, Oregon state, although I think at this point we're both pretty confident in, in how good Oregon state is, but there are two teams in particular in the PAC 12 and it's Cal and Stanford that I just desperately want them to get into the teeth of conference play to just figure out like exactly how good are these teams? Because I think, you know, you, you look at Stanford and you look at the, the statue and the way they're doing, it, and it's really impressive. Um, you know, but you know, they've played Utah and Washington State so far in the Pac-12. And, and Cal's kind of the same thing where, you know, I, I, I had even more modest expectations for, for Cal this year. And there's been times where they've, you know, such as losing three or four to Pacific to start the season where you're like, okay, well, I guess it's a rebuilding year for Cal. But then lo and behold, they just kind of keep – They haven't lost taking, since then. Yeah, they just kind of keep taking care of business and they're getting a little bit healthier. And so those are two teams – there are a ton of unanswered questions about the Pac-12 in general – but those are two teams that I just am desperately eager to get into the teeth of Pac-12 play so that we can kind of fully understand what's going on. Uh, briefly here on uh, Oregon State, we mentioned they are winning the Pac-12 right now. It has not been a difficult start of the of the Pac-12 uh, portion, the Pac-12 schedule. There it is uh, for for the Beavers. But they they've taken care of business. They're seven and two, having beaten Washington State, Washington, and Utah. Um, now this weekend, we've moved them back into the top 25. They're number 21 ahead of a big series this weekend against Oregon. That's a revenge spot for the Beavers, who, of course, lost two of three at home to the Ducks uh, a few weeks ago. They now have to go to Eugene and do it. So they're going to – they have something to prove this weekend, despite being the Pac-12 leaders right now. But if they if they can do it, I would probably start to say that, well, maybe Oregon State's the favorite in the Pac-12 as opposed to right now saying, like, either I don't know or, well, Arizona seems like the the best team. They've got the best offense. And, you know, yeah, it can be slow at times. But, you know, who's – is Oregon State really going to be able to do it? Like, we'll see. Uh, but so that's – it's a it's a big weekend uh, coming up in Eugene with Oregon State and Oregon. Now – Joe, a lot of this is happening. A lot of the uncertainty in the Pac-12 kind of exists because UCLA has not been the team that we thought they were going to be this year. We're halfway through the season now. UCLA is 16-9. and nine. They're 5-4 and four in the Pac-12. They just lost their third series of the year against Washington, a Washington team that previously had been pretty moribund. Um they go down, but but the Huskies go down to, to Westwood and win two out of three. And we dropped UCLA out of the top 25. They have three series losses. Two of them are, you know, really head scratching at home against San Francisco and, uh, and, and against UW. And then, of course, they also lost that series at Cal Poly. And after Cal Poly won that series, I said a lot of great things about how I thought Cal Poly could go in the Big West and, you know, they have not really backed that up. Um, they haven't looked bad, but they haven't, you know, UC Irvine has looked a whole lot better. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what UCLA is now. And if they hadn't beaten Arizona in a series, I, I really would be kind of wondering like, 
have they done much of anything at all, but at Arizona or beating Arizona and then, and then beating Irvine does give them a couple of nice things on the resume, but it's all the more confounding than that they keep losing these series. Boy, is it ever. Um, and it's one of those deals where it's really death by a thousand cuts. Like I wrote about this on Thursday night when they lost the, the first game of the series. Um, I just paused because I was like, or was that Friday night? Anyway, first game, <laughs> first game of the series, whatever. I wrote about it afterwards and was like, nothing here has really gone cataclysmically bad for UCLA, right? Like, this is not a situation where it's like Matt McLean got hurt early in the season and he's out for the year and then no one else has really helped carry the offense. And, you know, pitching-wise, you know, it's not like they have a five-and-a-half ERA it's not like the defense has really just been atrocious. Like there are a lot of ways in which you can say, well, this might just be a lost season. Like it hasn't been that everything is just not quite as good as you might have expected. Like the offense, like you know, Kevin Kendall has been great and having him back as a catalyst in the lineup has been, has been huge, but everyone else, mostly, I guess, JT Schwartz, I, I should, I should clarify since he's been healthy, he's really kind of just continuously hit the ball hard, but you know, outside of Kevin Kendall and JT Schwartz, every other offensive player is 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 either just kind of meaning expectations or has disappointed a little bit. That's including Matt McClain, who got off to a pretty good start, but is now hitting 284, which is is good for most hitters. But obviously, the expectations are a little higher for a player of, of Matt McClain's quality. So, you know, the offense has just been not quite as good, and the pitching staff I think is even more stark. Where you look at the team ERA and it's 345, and for a lot of teams, you take that. But this is UCLA we're talking about, and some of the stuff just really doesn't fit here. The best starting ERA of, the, of their regular starters is Jesse Bergen. That's 303, which, again, is pretty good, but it's not best pitcher on UCLA staff good. Obviously, there was the injury. The, the other thing about Bergen is mm-hmm. that he's made seven starts, and he's only thrown 35 innings. So, like, yeah, it's good, but it's also not, like, deep in the ball games good. For sure. Yeah. And then, I mean, you have Petways, you know, uh, being delayed coming back and, and he's come back and it's been inconsistent. And for some reason, Kyle Moore is not effective this year. Like it, he, he's probably as, as shocking as anything on this stat sheet is Kyle Moore's ERA being above four. You know, he's just been such a lockdown guy for so long now. And Nick Nastrini is out of the rotation now. Uh, you know, he's been moved into a bullpen role and the command has really been an issue for him this year. And so a lot of things have gone a little bit to moderately wrong for UCLA and you add all those up. And I think this is what you get. And I, you know, I don't, you and I could probably sit here and talk about it all day and you and I are not going to put our finger on exactly what the deal is, but whatever it is, uh, you know, UCLA is, you know, now UCLA is in a situation where as good as the PAC 12 is, you start to think less about, could this team be as good as we thought they were? And could they host and go to Omaha? And it's more like, are they going to be able to do enough to stay in the postseason picture? Because, um, as good as the Pac-12 is this year, like that's a little more of a question. There aren't as many series where UCLA is going to be able to just waltz in there and out talent the other teams playing in the conference. Uh, it's, it's a good league this year, so you can't you can't just waltz through. I'm not ready to press the panic button to that level, um, in part because they haven't played Utah and Washington State yet. Um, like I think they're going to make the postseason probably comfortably. The, the series win against Arizona wasn't that long ago. Uh, I just think that what they, what I can say that they aren't going to do anymore is I, I don't think at this point you can look at them 
as a team that is ever going to go on a run. And that means they can't go to Omaha because I don't know how you can trust them to win, you know, the five or six games. I can never remember that you need to win over regionals and super regionals in back-to-back weekends against quality competition. Uh, They, from week to week, you just don't know what you're going to get from UCLA right now. And until they clean up some of these things, because you're right, Joe, it, it is death by a thousand cuts more than anything else. Like they're fielding 972. Like it's not terrible, but it's also not what you expect the Bruins to be fielding or what even they would, you know, a, a good college team would be shooting for. They have Kevin Kendall and JT Schwartz and they're hitting very well, but nobody else is. Um, you know, they have some nice things about their pitching staff. There are a lot of options, but they haven't been able to get all of them clicking at once this season, really. And, you know, so they've got to, they got to find a way to clean some of this up. Uh, we should also note that Noah Cardenas in Pac-12 play is, is hitting pretty well, but, you know, Matt McClain to this point in the Pac-12 is nine for 40. Uh, he does have three home runs. So that That's a, a nice positive out of it, but uh, they need more from him and, you know, they need more from a lot of guys. Um, I don't want to make too much out of losing a series to Washington who, yeah, I mean, they're 10 and 14. They haven't done a whole lot this season, but they are still a solidly talented team that should be better than their record, I think. Um, so I don't want to say the sky is falling on UCLA yet, but it, it's sure a big series coming up this weekend against Stanford. I think for both teams, because they both have, have something to prove here. This is going to be the, even with UCLA being in this kind of uncertain place right now, it's still probably the best team that Stanford has played this year. And it probably isn't even all that close. Like otherwise you're looking at UC Irvine, I guess. So this is a, a chance for the Cardinal to come out and say like, look, we are, we're 16 and five right now. Like we are what the record says we are, or it's a chance for UCLA to say like, yeah, that was, that was a hiccup. We've had them before. We've got to, gotten it back together. Like we'll do it again. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. I I'm as a result, I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by the series uh, this weekend up at Sunken Diamond. Yeah. Same here. Uh, yeah. I'll just keep that, keep that short. Cause I, I totally agree. And uh, those series are not going to be on the PAC 12 networks. They are on just the uh, Stanford streams. So um, we will, we will be blessed with the opportunity to actually watch those games. <laughs> All right. Well, let's head to the Big 12 now, uh, where we had another team that was projected. You know, they were a top five preseason team projected as conference champion, and they hit a, a not insignificant hiccup this weekend as well. And that is Texas Tech losing a series at Kansas State. And I got to say, Joe, initially I was like, what just happened? I was very confused. And then I remembered, oh, wait, that series was in Manhattan. And oh, wait. Texas Tech, I've said it a million times, they're just a different team in Lubbock. You can't beat them in Lubbock. Get them out of Lubbock, you might be able to beat them. This was their first true road test, first true road series of the season, and they lost it. And even as good as they looked on on, on Thursday night, they scored 17 runs, JC on hit three home runs. Uh, you know, still, this is, it's just a different team on the road. I Like, they, they've won, they haven't lost a, a home series of any sort since 2019 and you have to go pretty deep into 2019 to do it at this point like that they they just win at home and on the road you can't you can't say the same thing so i don't know that's what i'm chalking it up to i'm not too terribly worried about texas tech uh 
but I will say that with, uh, with the big 12, uh, you know, that you're, you're looking at Texas and TCU as the other big contenders in the big 12, at least in Texas tech's mind, they've, they've already been in Oklahoma state. So they don't have to worry about the pokes quite as much. They get TCU at home this weekend, but they go to Texas. And, you know, I, at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to say that Texas is the favorite just based on the fact that they don't have to go to Lubbock. And that is a, that is a big thing. Like, it's funny how that, how that works and it can come down to, to things like that. I, I think it's interesting too, that we've, we've really kind of ended up in this place where the big 12 in terms of the teams, at the top are, are mostly kind of what we expected. There's been some, some doubts about, you know, TCU in particular, you know, early on uh, in the season and, you know, I, I guess Texas to a somewhat smaller degree. We've had little. Yeah, I mean, it was a fast. larger degree, and then they got it corrected faster. Is all. Yeah. So you know, we we've had some doubts, but yet here we are. And basically, if you sub Oklahoma State for Oklahoma, I mean, that's really the we thought Oklahoma was going to be that fourth team in the mix, and it turns out it's Oklahoma State, um, who was fifth. You know, in that, in that pegging order. So really, for all of the fits and starts that different teams in the league have had, we've, we've kind of ended up in a place. I think we thought we'd, we'd end up in the end. Uh, I, I'm with you on Texas tech. I, you know, I think we also sometimes are guilty of, you know, a team loses a series that we didn't expect. And I think it's easy to, you know, treat this a little bit like we do like college football where like one, you can be knocked out of the national title race with one bad game in a weekend, one bad 60 minutes. And in baseball, you know, most teams, you know, except for those teams we've had that have just been undeniable number ones, pole to pole, stuff like that. Like most teams are going to have a, a stinker of a weekend. And, you know, Texas Tech just happened to have one and it was on the road at K-State, which I have to assume Lubbock to Manhattan, Kansas is one of the tougher road trips in the Big 12. Because um, that's not involving like. West Virginia, obviously. Well, true. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, yeah, Morgantown makes that a little bit. But of the... Um, yeah, the previous iteration of the Big 12 schools. But I also, just selfishly, it's also kind of nice to be reminded that I wasn't completely nuts in thinking that there was something to Kansas State this year a little bit. It hasn't gone as well as I thought for a number of reasons, but it's a veteran offense. They've got talented pitchers. So, like, if this all ends up being, like, the highlight of Kansas State's season, like, it's kind of nice that it, like, oh, there, there was at least something there. So um, it just hasn't gone as well as I I would have thought. So that, that was a nice little, a nice moment there. And a nice reminder that, Hey, you know, the teams can actually, that team can play. And so um, I, I'm, I'm pretty intrigued by TCU, what they've done lately. Um, I think a big thing for them, it, it, it has been Austin Krobe the last couple of weekends. It was a guy that, you know, Jim Sloshnagel was talking up in the preseason quite a bit about, you know, this guy could be as good as some of the, the, the big name lefties that have come through the program in, in past years. Um, and, and he still hasn't been that. I mean, that's a, that's a lofty, lofty bit of praise, but where he had just been kind of okay for the first few weeks of the season, like he's been really, really good the last two weeks in particular against Baylor and Oklahoma, where he's, you know, gone seven innings, given up one or fewer runs, struck out at least nine, both times. I think that's a really big development for them um, because before it was kind of Russell Smith pitching well, and then kind of inconsistent in the starting pitching. And, Russell Smith has come back to earth a little bit, but I think those two guys give them a really good one, two in the rotation. And then they're kind of doing a piggyback thing too with Johnny Ray and Charles King. And that's been pretty effective generally speaking. So I think they're in a good place there. The offense has started to kind of shape up a little bit. I mean, don't look now, but they're hitting 294 as a team. And it's kind of the way you expected it to be 294, which is like, you know, a lot of guys hitting, 
kind of around 300. You've got some part-time players with high batting average. Like they're getting, they're getting something from a lot of different players. And so like slowly, but surely TCU is kind of rounding into form here. And that series this weekend against Texas tech, I think is going to be a really good measuring stick for how far that team has come and where they are moving forward to, for the rest of the big 12 slate. There was a stretch for TCU uh, from the last game and the Shriners college classic when they lost to Sam Houston state in extra innings. Uh, then they um, lost the next weekend. They lost their series to Gonzaga. And then they go to Louisiana Lafayette the following weekend and they lose game one. They're three and five over that stretch. And then from there, they, they have locked, they have locked in. They've won nine straight. They, they rebounded to win the series in Lafayette. And uh, they've, they've just really done a lot of, a lot of really good things since then and, and corrected whatever was going wrong for them uh, during, during that Gonzaga series loss. So, you know, I, I hadn't written them off, but I, I certainly was wondering what they, uh, what they were after they lost to Gonzaga. And then if they would have lost to Lafayette, I would have, I would have had a lot more questions about TCU, but they do seem to, uh, to have figured some things out at a very important time because this is a, a critical series for them at Texas Tech. Yeah, I mean, it was looking like, with TCU, it was looking like the the least charitable interpretation of what their roster was going to be was coming to pass, right? Where it was like a lot of kind of nice pieces and that, that'll, that'll count for something, but like, where is the where's the star power? Like, you know, who's the best arm on this staff? Like who can really carry an offense? And like some of that they're still doing by committee. It's still mostly an offense. that's kind of doing it by committee. Although I will say, you know, good to Zach Humphreys catcher who's been there a long time is having a career year. So like there have been some, some positive, real positive developments in that regard, but it was looking more and more like that, that kind of like, I don't want to say worst case scenario, but just kind of, like I said, the least charitable interpretation of the roster was, was playing out. And now what they've done the last couple of weeks has suggested that, oh, it's, it, it's actually a little bit, a little bit better than that. So it's still a team that I think gets by more on depth and veteran savvy and, and, and things like that versus just big star power. But um, certainly I think that we've, we're seeing some developments that suggest that, um, you know, it's not quite so heavily leaning that way as, as it might've looked a few weeks ago where it's like, you know, maybe they can, uh, they're, they're going to have these series like they do against Gonzaga because it's just, they're not going to be able to, um, you know, they can't pull victories from the jaws of defeat just on, on talent alone. Um, but that appears to maybe be changing a little bit. All right. Well, we'll talk more about TCU and Texas tech on Thursday. I am sure because that is suddenly a, a massive uh, big 12 series this weekend in Lubbock. Let's uh, let's head over to the ACC. Uh, Joe, I honestly, I mean, a lot happened this weekend, obviously in the ACC. Um, I don't, nothing really massively stood out to me, but you know, I, it's just one of those things where the ACC continues to churn and it becomes harder to latch on to, to things as the, the race tightens and all of these teams just kind of expose the flaws that they have. But, uh, you know, let, let's see where this takes us. Uh, unfortunately, Notre Dame and Pitt were delayed by two days, and that means they're finishing their series on Monday after we record this, and uh, they split the first two games. So that happened. Louisville took two out of three against Wake. Florida State took two out of three at home against North Carolina. 
Uh, Clemson won a series at NC State. Uh, Virginia Tech, uh, speaking of taking wins out of the jaws of defeat, uh, that is what the Hokies did against Boston College this weekend. Really big missed opportunity for the Eagles in Blacksburg. Uh, Georgia Tech lost a series to Virginia. That's the Cavs' first uh, first series win of the of the year in the ACC. Miami sweeps Duke. Uh, that that's your ACC. Uh, what what if anything jumped out for you? Everything and nothing. Like, and I say that because. We're just I, I, I. So I don't know how to say this without making it kind of sound like a, like a hot take or something. But like I'm just so fatigued of the ACC, like I truly am. And part of it is because we've had so much ACC baseball from like minute two of the season, right? I mean, they're already six weeks in. They're they're halfway through a twelve week ACC season. Yeah. So like I'm like I'm I'm endlessly fascinated. Like let me be very clear. I'm endlessly fascinated by the ACC race and I'm intrigued to see what becomes of it as the season goes on. But I am just really fatigued of spending every week trying to figure out what we're looking at here. And I think we, it's clear what we're looking at is an incredibly deep conference, right? Like when your team with the worst record is a team that, you know, has first round picks on it in Boston college, like, you know, you're dealing with a pretty, a pretty deep conference, but no one has stayed on the mat for very long. You know, that's part of it too. I mean, I guess Virginia stayed on the mat for the first five weeks, but then they, you know, they win a series against Georgia Tech. And- I mean, but they never, I, they, they did get swept, but they, they weren't getting swept for the most part. Right. Like they have six right. wins, you know, despite the fact that they only just won a series this weekend. One of the things is, I, so I was at NC, I just popped in on NC State, Clemson on, I didn't really tweet about it or, or really write about it because I was just kind of like, I was working on other things. I was kind of working on our top 25 tracker and I was looking at other box scores and watching some other games, but sometimes it's just nice to go out to the park and, and, you know, use the baseball game as your backdrop. So I I popped in on NC state Clemson yesterday and um, the, the guys who were doing the ACC network plus broadcast in the booth next to me, I could hear them in there talking. And one thing that, that they said that, that I think is true is that, you're at a point now where you and I can sit here and project that we don't think Boston college, for example, is going to have what it takes to get to a regional because of issues with their depth, particularly on the mound. But just looking at the numbers wise, like that that situation that there's really no team that you can say is for sure, just kind of out of it at this point. Um, Because you've got teams that are clearly talented, like Virginia, like them ripping off a run would not be the most shocking thing in the world. Duke does this kind of thing with, you know, relative regularity, let's not forget that in 2019, it was a team that really had to make a second half run to get to a regional and, and that postseason run ended in a super regional. So it's easy to kind of forget how hard they had to work to get to that point. So, you know, we're at a point now where you look at it and not, not really, it's hard to write off any one of these teams, I guess is, is what I'm getting at. So I think, yes, I'm intrigued to see what's the ceiling of Louisville. Like, can they be the national title contender? We thought they'd be like, you know, do, does Notre Dame hold on to being a team that could host, you know, come the end of the season. But I'm just as fascinated by which one of these teams that whose record does not look very good right now, which one of these teams is going to end up in regional because there are enough of them that one of them is almost inevitably going to, but it's just hard to see it right now. Well, right now, I mean, we've had 10 ACC teams at least in the field for weeks. Um, you know, going back to the preseason, I jammed 11 in. Uh as of right now, I don't know that I'd put in more than nine. Um, you know, I, I've been using this unofficial, like, 
the team has to be 500 or better for me to consider them. Well, I mean, the committee doesn't have that consideration and also like it's a projection. Uh, basically, that's just been in kind of a, uh, to, to let you in on a secret here, listeners, that, that's been a, a cheat code so that I didn't have to worry about like, well, do I really think Virginia is going to like find a way to figure it out? Like I, I just have been able to say like, look, under 500, not, not going to worry about it. At some point soon, I'm going to have to abandon that uh, probably, but the ACC right now has five teams that are either 500 or worse. And I mean, so you're looking at, you know, that's overall record, but those five teams are BC at 13 and 13, four and 11. Uh, NC State and Wake Forest are both 10 and 11 and only have five ACC wins. Um, Duke is 11 and 13, five ACC wins. Virginia's 13 and 14, six and 12. I mean, I get, you're probably right, Joe. One of those teams probably makes a regional, but I don't know how you pick which one it's going to be. I mean, I can f- get sucked back into Virginia if uh, if everyone wants. <laughs> like they uh, they look they look good this weekend beating Georgia Tech, but you know they're 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 still they are what they are. They have a pretty significant hole to dig out of here, and, and every one of these teams does. And I don't know what the committee is going to do with the 36 game ACC schedule. But to think that they're going to look upon it particularly fondly if you can't get to, you know, even close to 500 in the ACC, like, I, I just don't know. I mean, we, we've said in the past year that 15 ACC wins has traditionally been enough. Well, I mean, that, that means that you, you would be 15 and 21 this year. I, like, that's, that, that's probably not, not actually going to be enough. So. I don't know how many of these teams that we're talking about have 10 plus more ACC wins in them over the next six weeks. Yeah, that's a, um, you know, if, if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking for me to further suggest that like, don't look now, but Virginia dot, 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 is that their schedule as far to the extent that there is such a thing as a charitable ACC schedule this season, like they, they do have, they've got Duke at home. They've got Wake Forest at home. They played Boston College the last season, last series of the season. Mixed in there is also, you know, a series against Louisville, although that's at home too. And they go to Virginia Tech. Those are tougher. But so, you know, if you if you are looking for excuses to kind of like buy back in on Virginia, like if you believe in, in what they're doing now, like I think I think a person could get there. So, um, but that's kind of like a, a very sports radio like topic, like which one of these teams that are bad is going to be in the post, you know, that or that has been bad is going to end up in the postseason. But it, you know, this it's I think history suggests that there is one of these teams at least that, that is going to make that kind of run. And like I said, I think I'm just as fascinated by that as as what's happening at the top of the conference because frankly what's happening at the top of the conference is kind of maddening sometimes. So uh, sometimes it's more fun to kind of focus on, on that kind of thing versus, versus at the top. All right. I said, Virginia, who are you taking? Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's tough. Cause I mean, I, th- I think Virginia makes some sense from a scheduling standpoint, also from a talent standpoint, let's not forget that. Right. There was a reason why we were so high on them coming into the season. So um, there, there are plenty of reasons to feel like Virginia is in a good place. I guess I'd throw a flyer out there for, for Duke as well, um, because they do have a little bit of history of, of this kind of thing. Um, they are a team that kind of typically plays well down the stretch. And again, they also have, you know, you could look at the schedule somewhat charitably where they have some of the series against tougher, some of the tougher ACC teams already behind them. 
Um, not getting swept by Miami this past weekend was not a great development there, but they still got UNC who I, I think those two teams are a few games apart in the standings. I don't think they're that far apart in terms of, of team talent. You've got Wake Forest still on them that they do play Virginia. And that's kind of like a, an interesting little series there in this, in this debate, but um so I'm going to go Duke. I mean, I don't like the fact that they end with Louisville, Virginia Tech, Clemson, but um, so maybe Virginia is the right answer here, but, but just to make it a little more interesting, I'll go with the Blue Devils. All right. So in addition to trying to figure out who the best team in the ACC is and why it's the Oma Irish, we, uh, we now are also tracking the bottom of the conference because as, as deep as this league is, a clear bottom does seem to have been established. Um, I mentioned that these five teams all only have five or six ACC wins. Everyone else in the league has eight plus um, and is at least 500 in conference play. So we'll see where it goes from here, but uh, there does seem to be a bit of a separation happening within the ACC, which is, uh, I'm not going to say unhelpful because uh, the top of the conference sure isn't providing it. So whatever whatever delineation we can get as we rank teams, I'll, uh, I'll take it. All right, Joe, it was opening weekend in the American. You went to a couple games of East Carolina's series against Cincinnati. They swept that series, and you wrote about their pitching, and you were pretty fascinated by their starting pitching, which was uh, an important part of of the weekend for them. Gavin Williams uh, looked outstanding. And then I came along on Sunday night, and I looked at the totality of of that, that weekend, and I said, oh, wow, their bullpen didn't allow a run. And so if we can, two different people at two different times, I I should note here, maybe you would have come to the same conclusion if you'd been looking at it on Sunday, two different people come to those conclusions about two different parts of East Carolina's pitching staff. I would say that bodes pretty darn well for the Pirates. And I should say that like, not only did ECU's bullpen not allow a run, it's not like they only threw five innings on the weekend. Like, no, they, uh, they didn't allow a run and they had to cover 20 innings. So, uh, you know, when you consider that uh, along with it, it, it was 15 innings, not 20 innings. Uh, but when you consider that along with the rotation of in some order, Jake Kuchmaner, Tyler Smith, Carson Wisenhunt and Gavin Williams. I mean, you're looking at a pitching staff that probably I had not given ECU the proper credit for. Yeah. It's a team you're pretty confident in the floor, right? Because like, we know ECU is talented, you know, we're pretty comfortable with this group. A lot of these, this group of players knew the team was going to be pretty good. The question was how good. And I think they're a little bit of the opposite of UCLA where their situation has been that whatever, whatever the opposite of death by a thousand cuts, like healing by a thousand band-aids, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> is where, I think a thousand about, bottles of Neosporin. That's right. Yes. A thousand bottles of Neosporin. Yes. But they, a lot of things have gone a little bit better than you would have expected. Right. Like, so I think coming into the season, let's not forget that this was a team that lost Alec Burleson, who was kind of a do everything guy in a literal sense, but was a really solid starter for this team for a while. They, they lost him and Gavin Williams was coming off last year, having a broken finger and Oh, by the way, just hasn't been that consistent when he's tried to start. Like there's a lot of, there was a lot of worry about is Gavin Williams just, and I put just in quotes because he's obviously a really talented arm. Like he, he would be a good reliever, but there was a question of, is that his, um, is that the eventuality there is that he's just a reliever and that's all there is to it. So, you know, through that lens, what they've done in the rotation so far has been, 
you know, has to kind of exceed expectations where Gavin Williams has been basically unhittable for the last three weeks. He was being ramped up kind of slowly to starting, you know, Carson Wisenhunt's last couple of weeks have not been as good as you would have hoped, but on the whole, he's been excellent. And then, you know, Cooch Mater and Tyler Smith, like, you know what you're going to get from those guys. They're just really durable, dependable veterans. They're probably not, you know, uh, you know, Cooch Mater, I'm probably not giving enough credit because he's a guy who has thrown a, a perfect game before. Um, so, you know, he's had his moments, but both those guys, just generally speaking, are not the dominant arms like a, like a Gavin Williams is. So, um, you know, through the lens of what we expected in the rotation, like, that's really awesome. Like, you know, you're getting a good version of Gavin Williams and Carson Wisenhunt has been an instant impact guy. Um, and Cooch Maynard Smith had just been kind of what you expected there. The bullpen's kind of a similar thing. It definitely was a storyline over the weekend. You could kind of see it in the first couple of games uh, when, when I was there, what the bullpen was doing was pretty impressive, but it became even more impressive the last two games of the series and that double header because they didn't get long starts in either of those final two games from Cooch Maynard or Smith. So they had a lot more to cover there. And, and did so effectively. So offensively too, you know, it's a similar story where, you know, you like, you like some of the individual pieces, but like, is there, is there a guy who's going to be, um, you know, make the offense go? Is there a guy who maybe challenges to be an all American type guy? And, and Connor Norby has, has been that guy. There's a lot of really good pieces here. Thomas Francisco, Josh Moylan, Alec Makarevich, Seth Cadell, uh, Bryson Worrell hasn't been as good. And he's currently nursing a little bit of a back injury, so there, there's that concern there, but he's got that kind of potential as well. But, but what Norby has done, um, you know, has been above and beyond, I think, what, what he had shown so far and, and maybe what somebody expected for him. So, um, like I said, it, it's just a situation where a lot of things have gone maybe a little bit better than expected for East Carolina. And I think it was pretty clear, especially when you talk about depth, that, that this, is, this is the deepest and now is showing perhaps just above and beyond the most talented team in the American and it might not be particularly close. I mean, they, there were stretches where they did not play well this weekend, the Thursday game, they didn't play well really at all. And they got just a really well-timed three run Homer for Makarevich. And that was all they needed. And so um, they're kind of pulling rabbits out of hats. And I think that's the luxury they have where they don't, they can play a C plus game and that's probably going to be good enough. Most nights in the American. Shouts to uh, Jason Dietrich who, taken over the East Carolina pitching staff as, as the pitching coach in the last couple of years. And uh, he, he did a great job out on the West coast at Fullerton in Oregon previously in his career. And now, uh, now sure seems like he's got it going here at uh, East Carolina uh, briefly here on the rest of the American UCF and USF split uh, the first two games of their war on I four Um Wichita State goes to Houston in the series that I was most intrigued by and wins the series. Uh, they lost the opener. Robert Gasser was great for the Cougars. Again, he's been great all season. And then Wichita wins three one-run games on the road. And I think road series wins, if you're not ECU in the American, are going to be very, very hard to come by. So that's uh, that's big by the Shockers to, to go and get that series win. Uh, especially because they, um, you know, they and Houston were the only two teams aside from ECU that came into the weekend above 500. And, you know, so if you're trying to, you know, we talked a lot about this on Thursday, if you're trying to find uh, a, a second team from the American, I figured it was going to come from the winner of this ECU Wichita state series. And they played four more this weekend in Wichita. So if Wichita can double down and pick up another series win this weekend, I think, 
the Shockers are on their way to establishing themselves as that team number two from the American. It's going to require them to continue winning, except for probably when they play ECU. That, that'll be fine. But if they can be the clear second best team in the American, I think Wichita State may well have what it takes to, uh, to return to the NCAA tournament, which they've not done since 2013. And in the NCAA eyes, it's been even longer since 13 got vacated. I think the NCAA considers it 2009. Uh, either way, it would be it would be significant for the Shockers to get it done. Uh, and then Tulane uh, made some hay. They won a series against Memphis. Tulane's going to have to make hay here in the first month. Their schedule is backloaded. Uh, but if they if if they can do what they did this weekend and just win all these series here that they have early on. Um, before they have to play, you know, they play Wichita in the third week of conference play, uh, but they, they play East Carolina and Houston later. So if they can, they can make some hay early on, they may be able to hang tough in the, uh, in the conference race here and, and make things difficult for, for Wichita or for even in East Carolina, um, at least give it the appearance of some race going into their series against uh against uh and, and ecu later in the season i think we could kind of agree that like vacating wins is just kind of a silly thing like in general and so like because like i don't even remember what the 2013 wichita state issue was like i don't really remember or really care frankly but like i remember that team being in a regional and like what if like as part of the ncaa's vacating wins is that part of the enforcement of that is that they just went around to everyone's home and just like did that men in black memory eraser thing <laughs> to where like that, see that would actually have some bearings. It's like Wichita state wasn't in a, in a regional in 2013. What are you talking about? But now it's like you and I can like talk about, yeah, I mean, they were there. Like, so th- that, that would be wild if that was part of it. Cause that would be the only way in which I feel like that would be an effective, an effective thing. But as it is, it's like, I, you know, I, that 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 happened. Like I don't I don't know what the violation was surrounding that that made them vacate that. It was you know I, I don't know. Like I really don't even know. I was I was about to throw a guess out there, which I guess would have been a reckless thing to do. But like I, I just um, you know it, my mind would have to be erased for for me to feel like that was something that was actually uh, an effective deterrent there. I think they used players they weren't supposed to. Yeah, I was going to say it was an ineligibility issue. It was but. impermissible benefits. Oh, okay. Well, either way, they were there. Like, you know, whether or not they should have been, I guess, is, you know, the question the NCAA is trying to answer. But uh, but they, they were they were definitely there. My mind has not been erased of that. Gene Stevenson's last regional, as far as I'm concerned. Indeed. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. I, 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 the, the thing that most interested me this weekend was what Wichita State did. It was a close series. Um, you know, if Houston flipped that result, I wouldn't be stunned. And then it's a totally different conversation about what what Wichita State has going forward. But again, if they can double down this weekend at Frank X Stadium, uh, things, things start to look a lot different, I think, for the Shockers. Uh, it's too early to talk tournament for them. Like their non-conference slate is fine. It, it, it's not the kind of thing that like really gives them a whole lot of cushion, no cushion at all, particularly. They, they did enough, but uh, they're, they're going to have to keep it going all season lawn in American play and it got off to a good start though. And uh so so credit to the Shockers and uh credit to former podcast guest Eric Wedge. 
All right, uh, Joe, I think we'll save some of this Big Ten talk for Thursday. Ohio State swept Indiana. That's the big thing. Uh, and that sets up a showdown against Michigan. There'll be two of the top three teams in the Big Ten standings, no matter what the Wolverines do today against the Terps. Uh, this will be two of the top three teams, along with Nebraska, uh, in Ann Arbor this weekend. It's a series that didn't need any more juice. It's Ohio State and Michigan after all, but it got more juice thanks to this uh, this Ohio State sweep of Indiana that really has me rethinking the Hoosiers. Uh, I mentioned last week that, uh, look, yeah, the Hoosiers were 11-3, and three, but like if you peek into that 11-3 and three a little more, you start to wonder like, well, who did they actually beat? Uh, and now having gone swept in Columbus in a four game series, you, you gotta, gotta ask that question maybe a little more loudly. And, uh, Ohio state looks a little bit more like the team that Joe thought was going to Omaha in the preseason. I've made a lot about my Oma Irish pick, uh, you know, Joe's Joe's Buckeyes pick looking a little bit, a little bit better now. Um, so yeah, there, there's your big 10 update and we'll, uh, we'll get into that more deeply, uh, on, on the second podcast of the week, but Joe, anything you want to say about your Buckeyes? Just very nice of them to do this right around the time that uh, my magazine story about Ohio state and their pitching yes. philosophy will be hitting <laughs> uh, subscribers mailboxes. So very kind of them to, to make that timely for me. Uh, they pitched well this weekend. I mean, like I said, I, this isn't an Indiana team that crushes the ball right now, but Ohio state pitching, especially Seth Lonsway, uh definitely stepped up this weekend uh, for, for that sweep. All right, so we uh, we hit on a lot there. Uh, it was a busy weekend of college baseball. You can read more about it over at BaseballAmerica.com. Joe has the full rundown of what all the top 25 teams did. Uh, you can read off the bat, uh, all, both of those things, at BaseballAmerica.com, and we'll have more content throughout the week there as well. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And if you're not already subscribed or following the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app make sure to do that you can find us on stitcher spotify apple podcasts wherever you listen to, to podcasts you can find us so uh make sure you are subscribed there's a there's a whole we're, we're now the college basketball is done maybe it's not quite done when you're listening to this but it wraps up tonight uh you know this is uh this is college baseball's time to shine in the uh in the college sports spotlight so hopefully you'll uh you'll join us here for the second half of the, the regular season and into the postseason this June. We're, we're having some fun here on the podcast, I think. Hopefully, you're enjoying it as well. Uh, so Joe and I will be back here to talk about uh, week eight. Uh, that's, that's already a thing. Um, uh, later this week, probably on Thursday. So look for that in your, in your podcast feed then. For Joe, I'm Teddy. Well, thank you all for listening to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast.